happened today. The Yankees and Chicago White Sox opened up the season after wading through this week's snowstorm at uh, Covered Yankee Stadium. And in the fifth inning, tied 4-4, to Ron LaFleur triples to right center, scoring Billy Allman for the Sox in a 5-4 to lead. Steve Kemp drives in LaFleur to, LaFleur, I should say, to make it 6-4 to Chicago. Then in the Yankees' sixth, Dave Winfield with an opposite field home run on the right field post, scoring Ken Griffey to tie it up at 6-6. to It goes 12 innings, and Ron LaFleur gets the game winner for the White Sox. He singles in Billy Allman. The White Sox and their new uniforms win their opener today, 7-6, to and they sweep the doubleheader winning the second game to the nothing. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? All around the globe, it's your boy, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Half man, half podcast machine. Coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. I want to welcome everyone in from my loyal army of seam heads and to any of the uh, newbies who may have stumbled onto here, us here. Come on in, make yourself at home at, at uh, Backwards K-Pod. As we, uh, I'm going to continue to make this train continue to roll on. I hope that, uh, all you colonists in the United States enjoyed your uh, National Treason Day yesterday. Hopefully everyone in the audience woke up with all their fingers today. And I'm loving the diversity of the show catalog as I've covered over 151 years of baseball in seven months. From the history of the Braves beginning in 1871 all the way up to the 2022 Savannah Bananas. Backwards K-Pod is available on all podcast platforms or wherever you listen to your pods. I prefer to keep that content free to my audience. I will never send you a bill for being a listener, no Patreon, no crowdsourcing. Yeah, just do me a favor, share the show with other seam heads, help me grow the show through follows, subscriptions, and downloads. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, Please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I am stirred. And look, I hate asking you for even that, but they're valuable to me, and it helps me continue to do what I love to do more than anything in the world, and that's talk baseball. Without this show, I'd just be a uh, pathetic old man sitting in the corner talking to the wall about the intricacies of the hit and run, 
the utter waste of a goddamn out the bunches. But this way, the dog is my live audience and she don't judge. So I'm living my baseball dream and it's because of each and every one of you listeners right now. So to that I say thank you. Man, I tip my cat. I had some great feedback on last week's Savannah Bananas pod. If you missed it, well, like I said, I'm available on all major platforms. Or you can go over to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to check out that or basically any of my other shows that I keep in my archives there, which is all of them. I got a message here from James in uh, Mesa, Arizona. It's a snake. Great show. Uh, the Bananas have certainly caught the attention of social media. Who'd have thunk a small minor league team could even have that kind of presence? And there's always a way, I guess. The rules of banana ball would take some getting used to, but I know I would give it a shot. Keep it up, Jake. So, thank you for the message, James in Mesa, Arizona. And you're right on both accounts. I wasn't just talking shit last week when I said... Yeah, Jesse Cole is an inspiration to me. He's fearless, confident, believes in himself. He's, I, I look at him as like this marketing hybrid of Vince McMahon, Don King, Bill Vec. He's got a lot of flavor, Flav in him. And what the dude has done in a region where baseball was literally on her last leg. It's absolutely awe-inspiring. He is a Jedi master, and I humbly sit in his feet and anxiously wait to see what he does next. As far as the rules, I was able to catch a couple games this weekend, and if you guys want to watch them live, uh, just subscribe to the Savannah Bananas YouTube page, and they do games there live, and you know you get your updates and all, and you know you can watch them live on YouTube. But I was watching them live twice back, you know, last week, and it was great. I actually saw a dude get thrown out of the game for trying to bunt, and that kind of, well, that kind of made me horny. So, yeah, the, the rules take some adjustment, but the games go really quick, and the acts I saw this week were way over the top. Great stuff going on in Savannah, Georgia these days, and again, thank you, James and Mesa. And if any of you would like to send me a message or to the show, you can email the show at backwardskpod at gmail.com or the myriad of other social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn. I'm all tackled up in the web, bro. Look and ye shall find. And then go ahead and drop a snick of line. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And before I call all aboard, get this train moving again, I want to let you guys know that the next two weeks here at Backwards K-Pod is going to be bonkers. And the snake is up to the challenge. Next week, I will have the regular Backwards K-Pod show on Tuesday because, well, I mean, that's what I do here. And I'll tell you about that topic for next week's show at the end. You better know GC Meds. You know how I do it, right? But later in the week on Friday, I will be dropping my interview with world-renowned baseball artist, Greg Kreinler on BKP. I can't wait to hear about his new projects he's working on, what he has been up to since the last time I spoke to him. Yeah, that was around the time COVID-19 was beginning to surge. So I can't wait to put that out in the Podverse. And then that Tuesday after that will be All-Star Day. And wouldn't you know it, 
That day, you can wake up and hear the BKP history of the All-Star Game show right before you settle in and watch the game. So let's recap what I just said for the ADD faction of my audience. Next Tuesday, Backwards K-Pod as usual. Next Friday, there is a bonus show, an interview with Greg Kreinler. And then on Tuesday after uh, next week, the history of the All-Star Game on the day of the MLB All-Star Game. And I can't set it up any better than that, folks. That's top of the rotation stuff. That's a royal flush draw, folks. And I just want to repay my beautiful audience. And this seems like the perfect way to do so. Now, that I got all that out of the way, let's get this train rolling. As we are headed to Motown, Detroit, Michigan this week. To examine one of the most remarkable journeys to the major leagues ever in the history of baseball. And most of you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for that kind of shit. I, I love the struggle of getting to the show, whether it's LeVon and El Duque escaping the clutches of Fidel Castro, or Nolan Ryan going straight from Texas high school to A-ball dominating minor league hitters, or even guys you know like Nomo, Ichiro, Otani, using the Japanese posting system. And of course, there's Jackie Robinson defying all odds and live opponents. Changing the game forever. And these stories fascinate me. That is why I chose to highlight today's topic. Because of his unusual journey to the big leagues. And the odds of becoming a professional athlete in America. It's, it's extremely slim. Met T-ballers graduating to Little League and, and high school baseball. Some of those guys going want to play college ball. And the odds of a high school ball going on to be drafted by MLB is about it's about one in two hundred or around 05 percent. While beating and overcoming these odds is extremely pre- impressive. Today's topic: Michigan native Ron Lafleur. He overcame even bigger odds. He would overcome and transcend the walls of the Jackson State Penitentiary to take his place in Tiger Stadium and probably one of the most inspirational sports narratives of the 20th century. Defying insurmountable odds, including never playing organized baseball, LaFleur would rise above a severely disadvantaged childhood on the rough streets of East Detroit, as well as three years in prison before he became a major league all-star. Ronald LaFleur. He was born June 16, 1948 in Detroit, Michigan to John and Georgia LaFleur. He was the third of four sons in the LaFleur family pack. John LaFleur was a native of Mississippi who moved to Memphis, Tennessee as a child. And there he would eventually meet his wife, Georgia. The couple lived in a... uh, they lived in Memphis till 1943 until they finally emigrated north to Detroit in 1943 looking for employment. John would initially find work in an auto factory, but he constantly battled alcoholism, and it was hard for him to hold a steady job. Ron grew up in on the Detroit's east side, a blue-collar working class part of the city that was riddled with crime, 
prostitution, drugs. From an early age, the influences in Ron's environment led him down a path of truancy, drug use, pimping, and a wild range of crimes, including robbery. Especially robbery. LaFleur, in his own words, from his autobiography, Breakout, from prison to the big league, he opines that stealing was my specialty as far back as I can remember. I was always stealing things and getting away with it. Every time I went to the store, I would steal something, even if it was just a rubber ball. Just to show the other kids, I can do it. Sometimes I would steal just for the thrill of it. I got away with so much stuff that I began to believe I couldn't get caught. However, Ron's crimes became increasingly more brazen, serious, violent as he matured. As a teen, he spent 19 months in a state reform school, but that experience did little to deter the fearlessness of LaFleur. So on a cold January night, 1970, LaFleur and two accomplices, after snorting heroin all night, they decided to rob D's. It's like this neighborhood nightclub bar. It's across the street from the Chrysler Mack Avenue stamping plant. And LaFleur, who carried the 22 semi-automatic rifle in the robbery, was caught, quickly caught, and convicted, which led to a 5 to 15 year sentence for armed robbery. LaFleur entered Jackson State Prison on April 28, 1970. His first year, uh, year and a half, it included long stays in solitary confinement as he resisted changes to a more disciplined and regimented environment. He rejected work assignments and he was constantly putting CO, COs to the test with his uh, sheer belligerence. And it wasn't until like a year and a half in or so that he began to understand the concept of time off for good behavior. So while incarcerated at Jackson, Ron had his first experience with organized baseball in his life. And he played baseball there, and according to prison scorekeeping records, which, you know, they are what they are, right? He hit 469 in 1971 and 569 in 1972. He also became acquainted with uh, Jimmy Corolla, another inmate who was serving 4 to 20 for extortion. Believing that LaFleur had professional baseball talent, Corolla reached out to his friend, Jimmy Butzakaris, co-owner of Detroit's popular Lindell's Athletic Club, a bar that was frequented by many Detroit sports celebrities at the time. And Butzakaris, a classic Detroit bar owner, he knew many people in both high and low places, if you know what I'm saying. And he was a good friend of Tigers manager, Billy Martin. It was through this series of networking that Billy Martin would visit LaFleur in prison on May 23rd, 1973. And Billy went there, helped him secure like this uh, weekend furlough in June to participate in a Tigers tryout. After the tryout, Billy Martin, uh, well, he couldn't believe what that this unpolished baseball gem was sitting in a Michigan prison, just miles from him. And he told LaFleur, stay out of trouble, keep a low profile, and they would talk when he was released. 
Well, LaFore was released from prison on July 2nd, 1973. And immediately signed a contract with the Tigers that paid him a $5,000 signing bonus and a $500 a month for the remainder of the 1973 season. The 25-year-old was assigned to the Clinton, Iowa Pilots of the Class A Midwest League. And that was under the watchful eye of baseball guru Jimmy Leland. And it was there that Lib Floor began his transition from prisoner to pro baller. And Leland can remember having reservations about bringing LaFleur in. When I was told I was going to get him, frankly, I didn't know what to expect. I presumed all kinds of problems with the guy on parole. Could he cross state lines? Did I have to keep him out of bars and pool halls? Uh, what happens if a brawl breaks out on the field and he gets involved? Well, as it turns out, I didn't have any problems with uh, Ronnie at all. I guess the prison experience must have helped him rather than hurt. And that was Jimmy Leland, quote. The floor appeared in 32 games for the Midwest, Midwest League champions. They finished with a 277 average, one home run, eight RBIs, and two stolen bases. From that first season, LaFleur likes to recall how scared he was at the plate. In prison, he had only seen a breaking ball once. But when he went to the minors, he was fed like this daily dose of them by the literal hundreds, maybe thousands. And most of the curves he saw on the farm, they were shitty. But they did give Ron Fitz in the beginning. He can remember reading hard inside fastball, but at the last second, the ball would tip over the plate, and he would be jumping out of the way of called strikes. He also remembered the odd sensation of playing night games, something he had never done before, noting that, you know, in prison, they had other uses for floodlights. The floor started the 1974 season with the Class A Lakeland Tigers of the Florida State League. And that was before being called up to Triple A that same season. Ron would actually lead Lakeland with a 339 batting average and 42 stolen bases. At Triple A, he appeared in only nine games before being called up to the Tigers Big Club because uh, they had an injury to four time Gold Glove winner and center fielder Mickey Stanley who had broke his hand. On August 1st, 1974, Ron LaFleur made his Major League Baseball debut. And, you know, think about it. This is after only a little more than three years out of prison. Never played organized baseball in his life. And here he is now, a rebuilding piece on a last place Major League team in just the beginning stages of the rebuild. And that involved replacing nucleus parts like Al Kalon, Willie Horton, Mickey Stanley, Jim Nothrop. The four went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts in his debut versus Brewers pitcher Jim Slayton. But he felt comfortable. The next day, the rookie center fielder recorded his first hit, a ninth inning single off Clyde Wright. He also stole the first two bags of his career in that de- on that game. And ten days later, he dropped Dong on Royals pitcher Nelson Brown's lips for his first big league home run. The Flores started 59 of the Tigers' last 60 games that year. 
He finished with a 260, 301, 323 slash. Eight doubles, 66 hits and 272 plate appearances. Two home runs, 13 RBI, and 23 stolen bases. Defensively, he was a huge drop-off from Stanley as LaFleur committed 11 errors and finished with a pathetic 935 fielding percentage. But, despite all his raw, natural talent, Ronnie is still learning the game. You know, in prison, he could hit the piss out of the ball, run faster than anyone. And after that, he actually didn't know what the hell he was doing. The strides he made as a ball player in Jackson were really like the results of the gifts that the good Lord had given him. Now, fast forward four years later, and LaFleur is learning his craft at the highest level on the planet, Major League Baseball. 1975 taught LaFleur about the growing pains of baseball, the ups and downs of a cruel, heartless bitch named baseball, who will humble all of us when we think we have her all figured out. He started the season great. By the All-Star break, LaFleur is busting out with a 289 average, 7 home runs, 28 RBIs, 25 stolen bases. By contrast, the second half of uh, 75 was a test to both the floor and the Tigers front office as he had a paltry 206 with one dog, nine ribs, and uh, three stolen bases after the break. On a positive side, his fielding improved significantly as he committed two fewer errors than in 74, and he raised his fielding percentage to 973. However, in the next four years, would see LaFleur reach breakout levels beyond anyone's expectations. In 1976, LaFleur had a breakout year, which was overshadowed by 21-year-old pitching phenom Mark the Bird Fidrich. Man, I'll surely be doing a pod on Mark Fidrich at some point here at Bagridge K-Pod, where... We collect ball players and their stories, so stay tuned. Anyway, where was I? 1976. Okay, 76, despite suffering through the trauma of his little brother Gerald being murdered in an uh, East Detroit drug war, the floor starts the season off with a career-high 30-game hitting streak which saw him bang out 51 hits and bat 392 from April 17th to May 27th. On July 13th, Rusty Staub, Vidrich, and LaFleur are the trio Tigers sent to represent Detroit in the 1976 Midsummer Classic, held in filthy at the vet, which saw the, uh, you know, the NL molest the AL 7-1, pretty much a daily routine for the NL back in those days. I'll be talking about the, the All-Star game a lot in two weeks. LaFleur continued to rake after the All-Star break uh, until he ruptured his tendon in his knee. And that, you know, abruptly ended the season on September 12th. He finished with a 316 average, 58 stolen bases. And that was second in the AL to Oakland's Bill North, who had 75. Now, coming back from that injury, it took time. And after a slow start to the 1977 campaign, LaFleur took off in June. From the 12th of June to August 1st, Ronnie hit 363, 
the most productive five-month span of his career. For the year, he played in uh, 154 games, finished with a 325, 363, 475 slash. His 212 hits were second only to Rod Carew. He also finished with 30 doubles, 10 triples, career-high 16 home runs. To go along with those 39 stolen bases, he finished fifth in the AL in total bases. And he was beginning to show some power, which the Tigers had always hoped he would develop. The floor was recognized as the Tiger of the Year by the Detroit chapter of the Baseball Writers Association of America. He enjoyed in another season, in, uh, another fine season in 1978. Uh, although his average dipped to 299, he did lead the league the American League, and both runs scored with 126 and stolen bases with 68 while driving in a career-high 62 runs from the leadoff position. On August 11, 1978, he hit an infield single on Britt Burns to start a 27-game hitting streak, making him and the immortal Ty Cobb as the only Tigers to ever have multiple hitting streaks over 25 games. And again, he was recognized as the Tiger of the Year, the first back-to-back winner since Denny McLean in 1968 and 1969. 1979, LaFleur had another all-star caliber season. In 148 games, he hit 300. He scored over 100 runs for the third straight year, and he stole 78 bags. Second, only the Royals center fielder Willie Wilson's 83. And on the surface, it looks like Ronnie has found redemption, and it looks to be like this hometown mainstay, a Tigers kind of legacy player. But, you know, under the surface, the tides are always changing, right? 53 games into the 79 season. Sparky Anderson was hired to replace Les Moss, who became an interim manager after Ralph Hark. Ralph Halk was fired in 78, and it didn't take long for Sparky to sour on the floor. The floor self-admittedly began to enjoy the trappings of baseball superstardom, and he began flaunting them on and off the field. There was an apparent drug problem. And if you remember the Pittsburgh Drug Trial Show, this is during that time period. If you haven't heard that one, you need to check it out at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. And there were a lot of groupies and shady characters coming in and out of the Tigers' clubhouse. And quite honestly, Sparky wasn't feeling that shit. And true to Sparky Anderson, my way or the highway style... Detroit traded LaFleur to Montreal for pitcher Dan Chassiter. And on paper, the deal was, well, it was lopsided in Montreal's favor, actually. LaFleur was coming off a toured four-year stretch of ball, and he seemed to be, you know, a player entering the prime of his career. And he had established himself as a premier base dealer in the game. Schatzner was a young Southpaw who had just enjoyed what turned out to be his career year at 25 years old in 1978. But he did go 10-5 for the 79 Tigers with a 2.83 ERA. And two years later, Detroit would flip him along with Mike Chris to the Giants 
for outfielder, designated hitter, Larry Herndon, who, well, he was a key cog on the 1984 World Series champion Tigers team. And at some point, I would like to talk about that 1984 Tigers team, too. So keep an eye out for that one day. LaFleur, he was initially caught off guard by his hometown team's move here. But he went into Montreal and expect, he accepted the Expos' young brand of running gun style. He swiped 97 bags to lead the NL, hit stolen bases that year. And he became the first player in baseball history to lead the AL and the NL in stolen bases in a season. The Expos would finish 90-72, and 72, a single game behind the Phillies who would go on to be the 1980 World Series champions. And I talked all about that pennant chase in the Death of the Montreal Expo show. If you haven't heard that, you should definitely post up on that one. And you can find that at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. But by this time, the writing is on the proverbial wall. There were rumors floating around that he was snorting cocaine, shooting smack. His reckless behavior was having an adverse impact on the young, impressionable Spose, a fact that Top Brass uh, did not fail to see. And after one very productive season in Montreal, they let him go on the free agent market. On November 26, 1980, Ron LaFleur signs a multi-year deal with the Chicago White Sox, but... His team there was a total collapse of his game as he was plagued with erratic behavior, disputes with management, and by the end of the 1982 season, he is being arrested for guns and possession. Now, that's a charge that he would beat in court, by the way. Battling a drug problem and diminishing skills, LaFleur was released on April 2nd, 1983, and his nine-year MLB career was over. Following his relief from baseball, Ron uh, became like this uh, roaming baseball nomad. Now, I've talked about this before. You know, it's kind of sad. Mel Allen kind of went through this when he was fired from the Yankees initially. Before... Um, this week in baseball came around and resurrected his career. And here's Ryan LaFleur. He doesn't know what to do now. He's got a drug problem that he's trying to kick. He's trying to do the right thing. Trying to stay out of prison. But he's just roaming around trying to stay relevant in baseball. And I, I always find that sad. Following his release from baseball, you know, he, uh, he 1988, He's working as a baggage handler at the airport, and he decides he's going to attend Joe Brinkman's umpiring school, but he failed to finish high enough in his uh, class to qualify for a job in the minor leagues. He did find good times and opportunities in the Senior Professional Baseball League when he played for both the St. Petersburg Pelicans and the Bradenton Explorers. And he, you know, this was a league with many other MLB players from the 70s and 80s. And, and he, had, he had good times there. In 2000, LaFleur was hired as the manager of the new, now defunct Cook County Cheetahs of the Frontier League. Spring of 2003, he's hired to be a manager of the fledgling Canadian Baseball League in Saskatoon. 
that league would fold halfway through the season? <laughs> I mean, oy vey. That just sounds dreadful. I, I mean, my listeners in Saskatoon, I, I love my Canadian brothers and sisters. But I'm asking you, could baseball in Saskatoon ever work? I don't know. I, I've never been there. It just seems like, you know, someone should have, you know, talked him out of that gig right there. I mean, good Lord. Today he resides in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. In 2011, Ron, who says he began smoking at nine years old, he lost his right leg to an uh, arterial vascular disease as a result of smoking cigarettes all those years. And he now limps with a prosthetic leg, a cruel fate for one of the fastest tigers who ever lived. A constant reminder about the importance of decision-making in one's life. The floor has no health insurance. He lives month to month on both disability and his baseball pension. And he has said before, and I quote, I really needed guides, and, and I didn't get that. How come I didn't get that? I needed somebody. I really did. Especially considering where I came from. Just think, if I had played baseball as a kid instead of running the streets, just think. If I had improved my st- skills instead of going to prison, how good could I have been? Who knows? If I had received the proper guidance I needed in my life, all my life, I could have had some Hall of Fame stats. And folks, he lied. He does have a point. But th- th- there's that four-year stretch from a guy who... I went through the research. I, I never saw that he played anywhere. Little League, high school, college. It's just... It's just supercilious. Yeah, that's a real word. Google that shit. Supercilious. I tell you. He batted 310, stole 243 bags, scored 429 runs in that span. It's insane. That's all raw, natural, athletic ability. And while baseball was his Shawshank escape from Jackson State Prison, the resulting fame, it was like this double-edged curse. He was never able to quit cocaine or heroin before it destroyed his baseball career. Although he's finally free of those demons at 74 years of age now. Raul LaFleur left his footprint in the baseball sands of time, and no one can take that from him, ever. Even with this fall from grace, the floor accomplished so much in professional baseball that in that in itself is a major feat. No formal background and then an MLB all-star within five years. I meant what I said. Super silliest, dude. Rob LaFleur, he's a reminder to me that life has as many twists and turns, but it is talent that separates us from each other. And LaFleur is a cautionary tale. And folks, I think I'm going to end it right there. I know that Ron on occasion does speaking gigs, but for the most part, he stays out of the public eye. And he and his wife Emily, they live a quiet life down there in Florida. 
There are some things out there about Mr. Floor if you ever want to learn more about him, including the 1978 made-for-TV movie, One in a Million, starring LeVar Burton as Ron LaFleur. And it also stars Paul Benjamin, Madsen Clare, and even Billy Martin himself. And for all you CMED bookworms in my audience, check out Breakout from Prison to the Big League. Found it very useful in my research, very informative. And there are a few things out there that you can find on YouTube as well. I want to take a look at Ron LaFleur's final stats. Nine-year baseball career with the Tigers, Expos, and White Sox. He got a career war of 18. 1,283 hits, 731 runs scored, 172 doubles, 57 triples, 59 home runs, 353 RBI, 455 stolen bases. That's an average of 67 for every 162 games that he played. He was caught 142 times. And... He had a 288, 342, 392 slash with a 734 OPS and a 104 OPS plus. One all-star start. Four top 20 MVP finishes. Probably the greatest Tiger to ever wear number eight up to this point. Certainly the most memorable journey. And folks, just an unbelievably... Down-to-earth story. No superhero saves a day. No no happy endings. You know, this is a story about the journey, man. And Rolla Floor's journey still continues to this day. So, sometimes it's bigger than the baseball journey. Sometimes it's the journey of life. And I want to thank you guys for stopping by. I mean, really... What? An interesting dude. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed presenting. As we put another Backwards K pod in the books, I set my eyes on next week. Like I said in the beginning, it's going to be a fast-paced attack on your baseball conscience as I will literally give you three shows in seven days starting next week. I told you... About my interview with baseball artist Greg Kreinler. I will drop that tentatively on Friday, July 15th. I also told you that the MLB All-Star Game, which is Tuesday, July 19th. I will make sure you wake up that morning with the history of the All-Star Game pod to listen to before the game. And I believe the only thing I haven't told you about was, well, next week's regularly scheduled show on the 12th. Folks, next week... We take a look at one of the most uh, endearing baseball stadiums from yesteryear as we talk about Crosley Field, the baseball cathedral that used to stand in Cincinnati. I don't know hardly anything about it, and that's just how I like it. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards Game Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. 
Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day.